Good morning. I always like to share good news, even if it isn't necessarily good news for everybody, but I like to pretend that everybody is very interested in everything I do. Uh, <laughs> it's a habit. Uh, so a lot of people have been asking. We were able to close on our house this, this week, and so uh, that's been a big relief. Yeah, very happy about that. Uh, and now, um, in three months, we get to move there. So that's a little, a little odd, but, uh, but we're glad that the, the Lord saw us through that. It is said that behind every great man, there is a surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> I would say that behind every great leader is a whole lot of great followers. Last week, we looked at first, the first four verses in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, and Peter exhorted the elders in the church to shepherd and oversee the flock of God that is around them. In times of persecution, the church needs great leadership from the elders. A healthy church needs more than good leadership. It needs great followers. Being a good follower can be difficult, especially when you are used to being in charge. A mentor of mine served with Cadence International, which is a ministry targeted to our military members. In the military, there is a well-defined hierarchy. I didn't know if you knew that. It's almost as though they wear it on their sleeves. Yeah. A problem that comes up at a military church is the church leadership might be enlisted soldiers, but not the officers. A soldier teaching adult Bible study is outranked by half the class. Sunday is one way, and then Monday is entirely different. In the first century church during the Roman Empire, the teaching elder, which by the way, 80% of people that lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. So a good portion of the church would, would have been slaves. The teaching elder might be a slave, and his master is in the congregation. That would be difficult. Imagine being a slave and leading your master to Christ, and, uh, and you're kind of the spiritual father of your, of your owner. In our day, imagine being an elder, and your boss is a new believer and starts attending your church. When I was pastoring in Iowa, there were a lot of small business owners in the church. They were called farmers. I also had a lot of construction contractors that owned their own business. Following can be difficult when you are used to being in charge. I started in full-time ministry as a senior pastor in 2001. It's been a little while. And then as an associate pastor, I had a lot of autonomy and was given freedom to do things my way. I was used to overseeing and being in charge. And then last summer, I worked at a pizza place as a line cook. I've mentioned this before to, to a few people. It is very humbling to show up to work and watch your boss get dropped off by their mom because they don't have their license yet. <laughs> Every leader, though, should spend time being a follower. Why? Because you can't be a good follower absent humility. You can't be a good leader without humility either. I really appreciated my time being the low man on the totem pole when I was used to being in charge. It actually was a bit of a, a relief. Uh, something would happen and immediately, you know, decades of being the guy, being in charge, something would happen and I would feel the, the pressure of solving it and, of, and then I realized, I make minimum wage. This is... 
this ain't my problem. Uh, it was kind of nice sometimes. But you can't be a good leader without first being a good follower uh, because you need humility. You need humility, and, and following is a great way to learn humility, and if you don't learn it, it comes back to get you when you're a leader. This morning, we're going to discover seven actions performed by the humble. To obey the command given in 1 Peter 5.5 5 requires humility. So we've been doing Christians in Conflict with Culture, and, uh, and this last section is about, uh, is about the Believer's Church. And here we, we are given instructions on how to humbly follow. Humbly follow. So it starts out with, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This passage is similar in form to the section on witnessing back in chapter 3 with the interaction or the, of mutual submission in marriage. It said, uh, in starting in chapter 3, Likewise, wives, subject yourselves. And then it got to the husbands, and it said that same word, likewise. And so we saw mutual, uh, mutual submission in marriage. Uh, but, uh, but it really goes into that whole section of witnessing, where it talks about um, be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, and it just kind of went on. And all the, Isn't it interesting that the way that we're instructed to witness as believers is through submission? I wish it were a different way. Is God's word true? All right, then we need to, we need to keep that in mind. So here we're, we're, we're back to the likewise. Uh, there are many, the sermon was about to get shorter because I pulled two pages, but it wasn't going to make any sense. The use of the word likewise starts off the instruction to wives subjecting themselves to their husbands and husbands living in an understanding way toward their wives. Each requires humility and selflessness each requires being, in, being subject to one another. So here in 1 Peter 5.5 5 uses the word likewise to start the section out in relation to elders caring for and overseeing the people in the local church. The imperative given to the younger men in this verse is to likewise subject themselves just like the elders are to subject themselves to the younger. If you remember from last week, it uses elder with the idea that typically your, your leaders in the church are, are, should have a certain amount of experience and, and age to them. However, uh, age isn't the determining factor, but it does describe the, the type of person that is to serve as an elder. We're, we're warned in, in 1 Timothy and Titus, don't have a young new believer be appointed elder because you're setting them up for failure. Uh, and, uh, and so it, there should be a, a little bit of seasoning involved in this. Uh, I think the fact that I was a senior pastor when I was 23, and I look back at that and I say, what was I thinking? Uh, and what was the church thinking? Uh, what they were thinking is we're out in the middle of nowhere and we're looking for a pastor and uh, you'll do is kind of <laughs> what it was. Uh, but very different now than it would have if I were to have gone back with the experience that life has given me, plus church ministry experience, it would be a very different uh, uh, time there. That's just a reality. Uh, experience is a great teacher. So we have this word likewise, and elders caring for and overseeing people in the church, and for the younger men to subject themselves to the elders. Now when we look back at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 5, we don't see the words subject yourself. It's 
uh, in, the, in the command given to the elders. What are, what are they told? Well, they were told to shepherd and oversee the flock, right? In order to shepherd and oversee the flock as God would have the elders do, it cannot be done without the elders being subject to the flock. In verse 5, the response to the elders from the flock is to subject themselves to the elders. A church will not be healthy without mutual subjection. The Bible is talking about true subjection. What do I mean by that? A lot of people have the attitude that they don't have to be in charge as long as things go the way they want. That's not subjection. Submission doesn't start until there is a disagreement. Subjection is to place yourself willingly under the authority of those who had been given the responsibility of leadership. Can I let you in on a little secret? The Pope is not infallible. Neither am I. The difference is I don't claim to be. This verse is not saying that those who hold the position of elder are always right. There is a greater shepherd, a chief shepherd. He is the one who has ultimate authority. He is the one who is infallible. A chief shepherd, the, the, the one who is always right. So when an elder or a pastor is out of line with the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, ignore them and obey Christ. But what about the commands where there is freedom for differences of opinion or preferences? Paul instructed Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. That is a command, an imperative. But how evangelism is to be done is not specifically spelled out. There is freedom in how to evangelize. Certainly there are parameters, but freedom is given within those parameters. Another example, the church is told to sing. In Ephesians 5.19, it says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This passage doesn't tell us what to sing or what instruments to use. There is freedom in choosing which songs to use in worship. There is not an option as to whether we worship or not or who we should worship. That's spelled out. But there is freedom in how we worship. Is the song correct, or does it contradict clear teaching of Scripture? Ave Maria is a beautiful melody, but we aren't going to sing it. The song contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Remember that worship is not about our enjoyment. We are not the intended audience of worship. There is an audience of one, and it is God. We worship for his pleasure. There are many other instances where the Bible does not give exact details in how the church is to function. I believe the Bible gives clear evidence of the role of the local church in world missions. The Bible does not tell us which missionaries to support or which ministries we should involve our church. There are plenty of good, worthwhile ministries and plenty of missionaries faithful in carrying out great commission objectives. We can't support them all. There will be, a diff there will be different ideas on how to worship, where to worship, which missions and organizations to support, what time the church should meet, which Bible studies to use, and how to reach the lost. How can a church possibly function properly when there are so many options, so many preferences, so many different ideas about what a church should do? The answer is twofold. First, 
The elders need to care for the spiritual needs of the individuals in the church and provide oversight for the varying ministries of the church. And secondly, the individuals in the church need to subject themselves to the leadership of the elders. Each responsibility can only be fulfilled <clears throat> when there is a healthy dose of humility. So what does a humble person do? We already saw in verse 5, they subject themselves to church leaders. They subject themselves to church leaders. And then secondly, they prepare themselves for humility. They prepare themselves. Uh, I like food. I like to eat it. Therefore, I have to cook it. And... Uh, and there's a, I think it's French, it sounds French to me, called mise en place. Is that the right word? I mean, nodded yes, mise en place. Mise en place means you, you're, all, you're ready already when it comes, comes time to cook. You, you chop everything that needs to be chopped, you cut everything that needs to cut, that way you're not sauteing something and having to chop at the same time and now it's it's ready, but I'm not ready, and now i got to turn the heat low. Anybody else make mistakes when they do that? It's being ready already. You have to prepare yourself. We, we need to, I don't, I'm going to use this horribly, we need to mise en place our humility. We need to prepare ourselves for humility. It says, continuing in verse 5, Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. And then it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This is probably referring to a garment that slaves wore, uh, an apron that, that, that identified themselves as slaves. Uh, it would be a slave apron. So perhaps this is what it's referring to. Clothe yourself with humility. Um, start putting on that apron with the idea of, of I, I am subject to, to another. I think about my dad when he would come home from work, and the first thing he did was go into his room and take off his coat and tie. I don't think it was just about the comfort of taking off a tie, but he was removing work from his body. He was free. Here we have the instruction to put on humility. We are told of the time where Jesus removed his outer garments and put on a towel and an apron to wash a bunch of feet. He clothed himself with humility to serve and to meet his disciples' needs. Pray for humility. If you want to prepare yourself for humility, pray for it. Anticipate the occasions where arrogance will pop up when humility is what is needed. Compare yourself to God if you want to be humble. Depend on the Holy Spirit and don't live to satisfy your own flesh. Get right in the morning and check yourself at noon. What else does a humble person do? They act with humility regardless of position. They act with humility regardless of position. In verse 5 it says, All of you 
with humility toward one another. All of you with humility toward one another. Humility goes both ways. I've heard all sorts of reasons why a person thinks they should, have, should not have to be humble toward another person. I've heard these things. I've heard people say, I have been in the church longer than this other person. Therefore, there's no need to show humility. I've heard people say, I have been saved longer than this other person. I've heard people say, my grandmother was at the church from the beginning. Her name is signed on the church document. All of those I've heard as reasons for why I don't need to show humility in this situation or towards this person. Now, I haven't heard these reasons, but I have certainly witnessed attitudes that suggest thoughts for not showing humility toward another, such as, I have more education. I have more money. I've had more success in my career. My kids are better behaved. I give more money to the church. And this one, I actually saw it on Facebook back when I would look at Facebook. I don't watch or care about football as a reason for not showing humility. The idea was, I don't waste my time on that. I'm more spiritual. God's word is clear. Everyone shows humility to anyone. Let me say that again. Everyone show humility toward anyone. So regardless of a situation, regardless of is your, is your boss starting to come to church, but I'm, I've been here longer, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a member here, I'm, I'm uh, you know, yeah, you got me at work, buddy, but here, this is my territory. That's not the way to go. Or, my paycheck is bigger than your paycheck. I've had more success in career. I, I should be, my, my opinion should be valued more. How dare this other person with less education, less money, less success, how dare they think their opinion is as valid as mine? Now hopefully nobody would ever say that, but do those attitudes cover come up here? Sometimes they do, and we have to be careful about that. What does a humble person do? Oh, sorry about this one. Apparently I didn't make it very... If you've got... If you can read this... <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous. They avoid God's hostility. A humble person avoids God's hostility. Why is it wise to show humility toward everyone? Because if we don't, we are told that God will oppose us. In Proverbs 3.34, it says, The Lord mocks the mockers, but is gracious to the humble. The Lord mocks the mockers. Years ago, after Hurricane Katrina, I was substitute teaching at Hanville High School, and I was put in a class that was horrible because it had horrible people. The parents had failed and they owed the world an apology. That's what I told the class. 
they had, uh, so while I was trying to keep them from killing each other or start things on fire, uh, one of the little darlings noticed three students that were actually doing the work instead of making my life miserable. And I shouldn't have called them a little darling. The guy was huge. He, he dwarfed me in every way. Uh, he, he certainly could have destroyed me if it was his intention to do so. Uh, but he loudly brought attention to three students who were doing the right thing, trying to embarrass them for their good work habit. He said in a mocking, accusatory tone, why are you doing your work when there's a sub here? And now all eyes turned to them. He was loud and he was rude. The three conscientious students were embarrassed about being the center of attention, particularly because the attention directed at them came in a mocking way. And I got angry. So, I said to the, uh, the mocker, when he asked the question, why are you doing your work when there's a sub here? Immediately I said, because one day they'll be your boss. Now everybody's laughing at the mocker. And then I thought, what am I doing? He could kill me. <laughs> he didn't say another word for the rest of the class. Right? God says he will oppose the mocker. He will oppose the one who, the one who, who does not show humility toward another. God says, I'm against you. And you don't want to be God. You don't want God to be against you. God opposes. He, he sets himself against the arrogant, and life will not go well for them. God will show up like an army drawn up for battle with banners flying. God says, you show yourself as being above others? Now I am standing across from you with my armies and my glory ready to go. How do you feel now? I think of those, those films that show the, uh, the, the Roman armies or, or even um, middle, you know, the Middle Ages with the, with the knights and they, they come up over, over the rise uh, and, uh, and you see the banners flying and you're, you're the small army and now you see the Roman arm, army uh, coming up. God says, that's me, I'm gonna oppose you now. But the flip side of the proud Having God opposing them is number five in our, in our uh, reasons or what people do, what the humble do. They readily receive God's grace. They readily receive God's grace. Personally, I find it difficult to show grace to someone who doesn't believe they, they need it. That's the hardest time to extend grace is when someone is acting as though they do not need it. A humble person knows they need grace. Uh, I took the, the youth group from my previous church. Every year we would go to the uh, Okotoma River uh, in near Seminary, Mississippi, and we would go canoeing. Uh, and the reason I chose, it was a long ways from, from Luling, but the reason I chose that river is because it moved. Uh, and even if you didn't paddle, you would, every teen would eventually make it to the end. Uh, the water would, would take them there. Uh, and so that's, that's why we went. And one of the benefits is, is that uh, it had the slightest, tiniest little amount of white water. Um, just a, a, a little bit. The lowest rating you can have 
uh, a one. There was a couple of spots that would have that one rating, uh, and, uh, and that just simply made it fun. And there were no other rivers in the southeast United States that even had that. So we would make the trip there and, and go. Uh, one time, they had plenty of rain, and the water was as high as I had ever seen it, so much so that if I had known it was that way, I would have canceled the trip. Uh, because, because it was more dangerous than what I felt comfortable with with other people's kits. Uh, and, uh, and it was moving. So there was one, one waterfall at the beginning where there were a lot of people flipping. Uh, a lot of people flipping. Um, I am not a good swimmer, and I don't pretend to be. Uh, and so whenever a waterfall was coming up, on comes the life jacket. Like, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm not good. And... Uh, uh, and, the, and the life jacket comes on. Uh, and um, somebody had, not just somebody, people were tipping constantly. And the water was taking petals and, and coolers and you know, little dogs down the, down the stream. And, and I, had, I had set myself up to try to, to, um, to catch things for people uh, as, as, you know, as their canoe was, was swamped. Uh, and in doing that, there was a, a gentleman who was probably about 50 years old who was also not a good swimmer, uh, but he didn't put on his life jacket. And he had flipped and, uh, and was, I, had, I had caught his life jacket, and, uh, and he was in the water dealing with his canoe, and he was really struggling staying above the water. And he didn't even want to look at me, even though he knew I had his life jacket. And I thought, is this Bubba really going to drown just because he's too, too arrogant to ask for help? And the answer was yes, that is exactly what he was going to do. And I thought for a minute, well, I'm not going to give it to him until he asks for help. <laughs> and he, he kind of looked at me a little bit, and I, I held up the life jacket, and I said, you need it? And he looked away. I thought, he's really going to die from pride. I had never known you could die from pride. Like, I, the Bible says how destructive pride can be, but I, for the first time I, I saw it and I said, you know, if this goes in the paper, they're going to say he drowned, you know, he died from drowning. No, he died from a lack of humility. And then he kind of looked at me again and I said, need it? And he went like this, he went, just barely nodded his head to not admit his need of a life jacket. So I let that, no, I, 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 I threw him, I threw him the life jacket. I threw him the life jacket. It's hard to show grace to someone who thinks they don't need it. A humble person knows they need grace. The arrogant never give the need for grace any thought. I do think a preacher needs to preach with confidence but the confidence needs to be in the Lord. God has set before us tasks that are difficult. In the Old Testament, a gentleman named Zerubbabel, uh, he was an Old Testament character, and he was in the line of kings. He wasn't a king because they had been conquered, but he was in the line of kings, and he was tasked with rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem after the Babylonians destroyed it. And God gave him this message through the prophet Zechariah. It says, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The great task of building the second temple would not be accomplished by the might or strength of Zerubbabel 
or the workers. The task would be accomplished by the Spirit of God. Sometimes God says, oh, you want to do it on your own without depending on me? Okay. And then it doesn't go well. The humble consider God's grace and say, can I have a double portion? There's a song that I love. The chorus goes, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. That needs to be the song in our heart all the time. Lord, I need you. What does a humble person do? Well, they have a hope that is eternal. They have an eternal hope. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What I think this verse is saying is that if you won't humble yourself to others, particularly fellow believers in the church, then you haven't humbled yourself before God. If you have humbled yourself before God, then you will be able to humble yourself before others. Why? Because God said to, and who am I to tell him no? Humbling ourselves before God is the real issue. We are arrogant toward one another when we are arrogant toward him. An elder won't consider the needs of the congregation without humility toward God. Individuals won't subject themselves to the elder's authority nor respond to their leadership without humility toward God. The motivation, the reason humility toward God and each other is that in God's perfect timing, he has determined to exalt the humble. Only the humble trust in God and his plan for salvation. The humble recognize their complete dependence on God for their sins to be forgiven. The arrogant don't rely on God. They can do it themselves. So they exalt themselves in the present and miss God's promise for the future. We have an eternal hope, which is a certain hope, not fingers crossed wishful thinking. Saying that you have a guaranteed hope for eternity spent with God will make some people accuse you, not of humility, but of arrogance, to say that you know for certain. That is only true if your hope is in yourself. If your hope is in Christ and his death is payment for your sin, it's not arrogance. It is true humility. It is admitting that there is nothing I can offer. It is Christ alone. The last action of a humble person that we'll cover today is found in verse 7. It says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. They allow God to carry their worries. They allow God to carry their worries. I have this bad habit. I like to store my worries in my belly. I swallow them down and hold them there because nobody else could possibly handle my worries. I know that everybody has their own worries, but mine are bigger and more consequential. You ever have that attitude? My worries are special. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? What is even more ridiculous is the thought that God either can't be bothered by my worries or can't be trusted with them because they are so special. We need to treat our worries like hot potatoes. You remember the game hot potato? 
Do kids still play that game? No, I'm old. I appreciate the honesty. Kids don't actually use a hot potato, don't do that, but take a ball and toss it to one another, and when the timer goes off or whoever is holding the hot potato loses. That is what we need to do with our worries. We toss them to God as quickly as we can. God, here's my, here you go, God. Here it is. Let me get rid of this worry and cast it on you. Sometimes we pray and give God our worries, and we say amen, and then we take our worries back. Recognize that God cares for you. How do I know God cares for you? He died for you. And there's no greater demonstration of love than that. The proud will not give their concerns over to God. If you are a worrier, can I remind you to humble yourself and trust the God that created the entire universe and knows you by name and allow him to carry your worries for you? Your biggest worry is eternal life. And he handled that one pretty well. What worry are you carrying that is bigger than that? In Psalm 55, 22, it says, Give your burdens to the Lord, and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. I was thinking about this passage and and putting together this sermon, and I wrote down some reflective thoughts that I had that I hope that, uh, that you might find helpful. And here's two thoughts I had. I have not demonstrated a right to be arrogant. So arrogance doesn't make sense for me. Second thought was, I have continually demonstrated a need for humility. Mandeville Bible Church needs humility from everyone who attends. We need to recognize our total and complete dependence on God. Those that serve as ministers and provide oversight and care for the church need to constantly check their heart and mind to see if there is any pride that needs to be rooted out. Those that are subject themselves to the rule and leadership of the elders need to set their mind toward humility, and particularly in relation to God's authority. The church doesn't belong to any of us. The church is the body of Christ. And fortunately, I belong to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your church. It's not any of ours. It doesn't belong to us, but we do belong to you. Father, we just ask that we would recognize that humility is a great thing. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's not a disdainful thing. It's not a chore that, uh, that we're supposed to perform. But it's the means by which we experience your grace. Grace in eternal life, but grace here in this life as well. Father, help us to to not compare ourselves to others that we think we compare well to, but instead we will compare ourselves to your righteousness. And rather than feeling terrible or bad about ourselves, that we will rejoice in your righteousness because it's what you've offered us through your son Jesus Christ when he died for our sins, when he died for our unrighteousness. And Father, the fact that you look on us as sinners and you've declared us to be righteous because of the the death of, of your son, is uh, it's amazing 
How can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain. Well, that's a humbling statement. And yet what joy comes from being saved? What joy comes from recognizing your greatness and your righteousness and your perfection uh, and that you loved us enough to send your son to die in our place, to pay that penalty. Father, there's times when we absolutely probably should feel bad about our sin just recognizing that that, that sin is, is gross. But Father, let us not walk around in pity, but instead rejoice that, uh, that, you, that your son paid it all. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.